Welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach, a podcast that unpacks international trade and how it affects you without putting you to sleep. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. I'm Lori Wallach. In this episode, we're going to explore the UAW strike, the United Auto Workers Historic Strike. It's important, it's in the news all the time, and we have an amazing guest to help us explain why actually you don't have to be an auto worker for this to really affect your life and your future and give it a little historic context. I am honored to have Larry Cohn join us on this episode. Larry's the former president of the Communication Workers of America, CWA, That is a very large union, 700,000 members, and they touch your life all the time. It's the folks who are the AT&T phone folks and the people who are fixing your cable and the people who are in the back office of banks and the people who are your flight attendants, people who have done amazing manufacturing work. And Larry played a really important role in the AFL-CIO, the Labor Federation, Most importantly, of anything, I would say Larry is like my mentor and guide on all things labor. And he is a wizard of history and context and how to organize people's power. And there's no one better to have us on this guided tour of what this strike means. And now he is chairman of Our Revolution, which is Bernie Sanders' political organization. Larry Cohn, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. So, Larry, in a nutshell, what is so significant about this particular UAW strike? Well, in addition to sort of how we got here and what this strike means in terms of rekindling enthusiasm of working class Americans to fight back and to organize in all different ways, depending on where they are and what they do, it's significant in terms of the demands because the key demand here which bridges onto the trade issue where your own work has been so amazing, is about jobs. Now, you don't hear that constantly from the mass media because what you hear is about inflation, catch up, the boss has got 40%, we want 40%. Those issues are going to settle. The core issues are really the interaction between the Inflation Reduction Act, which is about trade, the new manufacturing in this country, including electric batteries, and the rights of the workers in the battery plants, particularly in this case, the ones that are linked to Stellantis, the former Chrysler, GM and Ford, mostly joint ventures with Korean or Chinese companies. What will the standard of living be? This is where the jobs are going to be. When you produce an electric car, the overwhelming important factor in terms of labor and even cost of the car are the batteries. That's totally new. Even newer is that they're going to be produced here because of the Inflation Reduction Act and trade policy to a certain extent that fits in there. The question is, if that's the main component of the new cars, what is the bridge that gets the battery workers to the level where auto workers are now? Because they're going to be the auto workers. And then we have the White House allowing those subsidies for that manufacturing to go to what I call cornfields or greenfields, not brownfields. This White House could have said these plants environmentally and in terms of racial justice are going to go in the burnout cities that U.S. trade policy devastated. 
And we know those names. They're legendary. Flint, mostly black workers. No drinking water. Akron, where the original first sit-down strike occurred. Rubber workers. Burnout. No manufacturing. Site after site of closed plants that could be reopened. Lorain, Ohio. Toledo, Ohio. Davenport, Iowa. Kenosha, Wisconsin. We could go on and on. The list is endless. Not pouring all the White House money and no Republican votes for the bill into Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina. I'm an environmentalist as well and fight hard on those issues. But it can't just be any old battery plan will do. No, it's got to be we got to link together to build the political movement, the environmental rights, put the plant in the brownfield locations and give the jobs racial justice movement to the black workers and communities that have been ruined by our trade policy more than any others. Cleveland, Ohio, I left out. I could go on and on with that list. My old neighborhood of North Philadelphia. These are burnout, poverty-stricken communities because of trade policy and because of corporate greed. That's what's at stake in this fight. It's not just what will my pay increase be. It's what happens to this industry and who benefits. That's a really helpful perspective because, folks, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, that's the brand. But what it really is, that bill, is the biggest investment of your tax dollars, billions of dollars of U.S. money, government money, into trying to create a domestic electric vehicles industry and trying to have domestic solar production, etc. And how that money is spent, as Larry is saying, is it in union shops? Is it in places where our trade policy, our tax and other policies have gutted production, have gutted, taken away all the good jobs and left communities destroyed? Those rules were not in the legislation as strongly as they should have been. And so now it's a very helpful perspective that in part what the UAW is doing for all of us is in this particular important sector, those electric vehicle batteries, that fight is for all of us about what the future green economy is going to look like, where it's going to be located. And having these battery plants that are partnerships with Korean and Chinese and other companies, but are in the U.S. and are going to have our tax dollars in them, be union, be good wage, that's part of what this fight's about. And that's going to be the whole future of the green economy we need to shift to, to not kill the planet but it's got to work for people too. So Larry, tell us about the context of the strike. Sure. So I think we have two or three different factors piled on top of each other. One would be the amazing internal changes in the UAW coming off a period where they had uh, a U.S. attorney involved probing and convicting top leaders and going from that to uh, members of the UAW directly electing the national officers. Two, you have the whole nation's focus on electrification, the Inflation Reduction Act, huge subsidies, uh, particularly for manufacturing batteries, but also EV assembly, electronic vehicle assembly. Three, you have the small number of workers, only 6% of workers in the United States in the private sector have bargaining rights. It's the lowest of any country in the world. And so then you have this giant inflation the highest level of inflation in, in many, many years. And so you have bargaining. And the, the thing that's interesting about auto, it actually is sectoral bargaining. That's the standard for the most of the democratic world, meaning the world democracies, sectoral, the whole sector bargains, and then you can have enterprise bargaining later. Well, in auto, going back to post-World War II, they basically had sectoral bargaining. 
And the way that they did it, going back to post-World War II and the time of the Ruther years, is that they would begin bargaining. They would have separate bargaining teams, including a national vice president that they still have for each one of the three, Ford, now Stellantis, and GM. And then at a certain point, they would, quote, target one of the three, not for a strike, but to reach an agreement. And they then would demand literally the exact same agreement, almost with not a comma change, from the other two. And they had this power, they've always had this power to strike these three companies. But now we come full circle, uh, 80 years later, literally. And number one, thanks to U.S. trade policy and other factors, they've lost market share. A huge number of jobs have moved to Mexico in the big three and other places in their supply chain and even final assembly in the case of Mexico. Um, and on top of that, we have electrification and then we have the changes in the union. But the important point here would be you're seeing a version of sectoral bargaining, even with all those changes in this industry. It's part of what makes it a big media story, a version of sectoral bargaining, given that in the U.S. bargaining rights are at the literally global bottom. And the UAW itself is a, is a storied union. You mentioned the Ruthers, and those are the Ruther brothers, legendary uh, presidents and other officers of the United Auto Workers. Some people sort of say the labor movement gave us the weekend, gave us these rights we're so used to. A lot of people, I would say, have no idea that people literally died fighting for these rights, the rights that the UAW helped achieve for the broader U.S. labor movement. In a way, it's kind of symbolic that at this moment, they're fighting things that are happening across the economy, like two-tier wages. The new guys get crap wages, and the more senior people get better wages, or that they're at the forefront of this debate about how we change our entire transportation system to be less carbon intensive. Tell us a little bit of the context of how this is coming up for that union of all places. Sure. So first of all, this is the union that brought us employer-based health care. It has a lot of disadvantages now, but back when they first negotiated it, workers were on their own for health care. Everybody was on their own. Almost everybody in this country was on their own. So that would be one. Uh, this cost of living adjustment that they want to bring back, they brought it in in the first place. The idea that you could negotiate a collective agreement, but that there would be check-in points where based on the change in the consumer price index, your wages were adjusted up. That was the UAW. There's a long list of those things. It comes from, though, the sectoral power that they built through things like the sit-down strikes in 1934, where in Flint, Michigan, now hollowed out thanks to U.S. trade policy um, and other factors, but trade policy way at the forefront. But in Flint, at a GM plant, for uh, more than a month, the workers occupied the plant. Family members brought them food. It was passed in through the windows. And the president of the United States, much more importantly, by the way, than a symbolic appearance on a picket line, uh, told the governor of Michigan, hands off. And uh, th this is up to the GM and, uh, and the company. And that actually predated the National Labor Relations Act that partially was a cause of getting private sector labor law in the United States. And it wasn't just GM or auto workers in Flint. There were rubber workers in Akron. There was general strike in Toledo. That was auto parts. But it wasn't just that sector, but it was an incredible uprising of working class people 
saying, no more, no more wage cuts. We've had enough. We're fighting back. And they built uh, unions, including my own, CWA, out of, out of that struggle. Over the next 15 years, more than a million workers a year got collective bargaining rights. So I want to go back to that because I think that was such an important moment. And here we are. We have labor rising across the country with basically historic strikes in a bunch of different sectors, Some a great contract with the Teamsters at UPS. And I'm wondering, have we hit that, what I call the Boston moment, where people have just effing had it? And, you know, the labor movement becomes a way to articulate getting back their power. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that before those sit-down strikes, before some of this really brave industrial action, the boss would just basically say, screw you, we're not negotiating, and maybe send a bunch of Pinkerton guards with guns to either literally kill the leaders or beat the crap out of a bunch of people, burn down houses. So where are we in the arc of history at this moment with this UAW strike being part of really this arc of rage of being abused as workers? Yeah, well, so again, to me, the key measure globally is uh, percentage of workers that have collective bargaining rights. And then what are those rights? It's a second question. But so we're back below where we were at the beginning of the depression that began in the 1920s, 28, 29. It was about 8% collective bargaining coverage then, maybe even nine. And now it's six in the private sector. There's a countervailing increase in public sector collective bargaining rights from zero back then that peaked at about 35%. Now it's dropped some uh, with the tax on public sector bargaining. But but in the private sector, we're below that trough, that bottom now, as well as being the lowest of any democracy in the world. The Boston moment, workers are saying enough, particularly younger workers with you know a record high level of support. And you see it in the Starbucks organizing. The problem in the US is even more then in 1934, when those sit-down strikes occurred, uh, the deck is stacked, the dice are loaded in the United States when it comes to workers' rights. So we have the worst legal support in the world. We have a Senate, we have a House of Representatives that many, many times in the last 20 years has tried to change the legal support. 60% supported the Employee Free Choice Act, the majority, including 16 Republicans in 2006, no, 2008. The PRO Act, which is the latest version, first Taft-Hartley gutted the Labor Act in 1948 or 49 over Truman's veto, the president's veto. But the real blow was getting rid of a doctrine, uh, not a doctrine, but a, a policy at the board court called Joy Silk, which was that whenever a majority of workers support a union and demonstrate that support, the, the employer has to recognize them and bargain. And that got thrown out by the Supreme Court in 1969. And there were a lot of political things that contributed. But ever since then, and even earlier, the, the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary have put a muzzle on working class people in this country. We have the worst employers in the world. They have no tolerance for collective bargaining or, or many other things that workers want to do. So they are the worst in the world of any democracy, the private sector employers in this country. And, and then you have, on top of that, you have the labor unions themselves getting conditioned to really low expectations. And that brings us to why the, the strike like at UAW or the mass mobilization of the Teamsters at UPS or in a, in a lesser way, in a certain sense, the Hollywood strikes, they're wake up calls. But they're all they're all part of what Lori's talking about, which is workers saying enough and we're going to stand up and fight back 
in any way we can. Bottom, no, not yet, sadly. But the beginnings of the movement building that brings about change. So that notion of the building of that power and folks, you know, I want to underscore what Larry said, a million workers a year during that period after the brave sit-down strikes, the literal occupation of a factory in Flint for a month. They basically said, okay, bosses, you don't want to negotiate, you don't want to be fair, you're not going to make a dang car. We're just going to sit here and occupy the damn space until you change your mind. So this fight is number one at our workplaces where we have a union. We have to do the education that you saw in UPS that you've seen in my whole, well, for the last 40 years at CWA, we call it CWA mobilization. Um, and what you see now in auto, the internal education to developing mobilizers, having grassroots meetings in the workplace on break time, teaching our members and listening to them to build that kind of bottom-up in every workplace is what's really at the key of the UAW. It's not the strike. The strike is a tactic. A tactic meaning if, if I'm a mechanic and I go to fix your car, I got a bunch of tools. I don't just have a hammer. And the strike might be the hammer, but I got screwdrivers, I got wrenches, I got all the things that mechanics need uh, to fix cars. The strike is a tactic. The underlying thing with UPS, at Hollywood, in auto, at John Deere, where they had long strikes uh, earlier in the year, the truck and, and tractor manufacturer, is the unity of the members through education around what are our core issues, and then we demonstrate that. So in CWA since 1987, we're red on Thursday, even when there's no bargaining. And that's what CWA mobilization starts on, something that everybody will do, even the shirt. It's the unity and building it through two-way discussion. So that's the part we can change now, because even if we're 6%, if eight or 9 million workers in the private sector, and then there's another 15 million in the public sector, and we saw Red for Ed, where teachers, even in West Virginia, organized in 55 counties and walked out. They, don't, they didn't have a union per se. They certainly didn't have bargaining rights, but they organized county by county and took action. That's what it's going to take to infuse workers' rights into our movement for change, along with other key issues, including trade, including abortion rights, including health care. It's a long list. But melding those issues together into a political movement like we saw in the 1930s, to some extent in the 1960s, and to some extent even in the Obama years, at least in the election of 2008, a political movement demanding real change. So that kind of outside pressure and then politically having a Congress that represents working people and making the law change are the way forward. What is it that the law needs to accommodate? Right. Well, that's a long story. So it's things like that where you say that if workers demonstrate that they have majority support, employer, you're going to have to bargain with them in real time, not in judicial time or legal time, in real time. And so... The Employee Free Choice Act, which was the cutting edge legislation that had 60 percent support in 2008 from the Congress. And then we couldn't get it on the floor of the Senate because of these ridiculous rules that require 60 senators just to debate a bill. Not only a majority to pass it, but you can't put it on the floor without 60. That's a huge block in and of itself. 
combined with what the federal judiciary has done to the old law from 1935, you know, over the last, we'll call it 80 years, and what Congress did to it in 1948 by gutting parts of it and with Taft-Hartley amendments to the National Labor Relations Act. So what we need to do now is, and again, this is a program often about trade, we need to be at the global level, the high level, just like on trade, which is what we're trying to drive to, on workers' rights. And the global standard on workers' rights is when workers organize, they bargain, and the default is sectoral. They bargain for their whole sector in a democratic way. And then secondly, they bargain. So that would be like at least cars. It could be even broader. Manufacturing, but then it would also go down to the enterprise level, what you're seeing now, for example, at GM and Ford and Chrysler. But to some extent, the UAW is going to set a pattern there so it's not just the enterprise level. But that's the problem that we have to fix. And we, we're going to need a massive political movement to do it. We have to change the Senate rules so that a majority in the Senate can put a bill on the floor. And even if they let minority members, meaning the minority party, amend it, debate it, that eventually they get a vote on it. Otherwise, we can't change the federal law right there. That stops us on voting rights. It's not just on this. It stops us on abortion rights. The so-called filibuster, it's, it's a non-talking filibuster. It blocks any reform that working people would care about. And so the aha or we've had enough moment is blunted by the realities of what happens, say, in, in Starbucks, workers in 300 different stores organize, and not one of them has meaningful bargaining. Starbucks hires Littler Mendelssohn, uh, an outrageous firm. They break the law and tell, teach people to break the law because there's no real penalties. So you can fire workers who organize. Uh, you can refuse to bargain. You just blatantly break the law and you run out the clock till people give up. You close the stores whenever you want to, like Ithaca, New York, where they close them all. You break the law and that's what they teach. So the, the judiciary then is the other piece of, of why we're not at the bottom yet. So my view is not shared by all. It will take coordination between a workers movement similar to 34 or even you could say what we are seeing in pockets now, including the strike action and a political movement. You're, we're not going to get there without a political movement, which, you know, in, in, in the 1930s, 1934, 35, 36, to some extent, it was built out of that labor militancy. You know, the New Deal, the Democratic Party was not a party of working class people. It was basically a party of segregation. It was a, a party of many of bosses in cities like where I grew up, Philadelphia or New York, Tammany Hall. It was corrupt, the Democratic Party. But the, the wave of labor militancy helped change the party. That changed, to a certain extent, the political atmosphere. And, and you get things working off each other, multiple factors, that lead to a million workers a year winning bargaining rights and supported at that time, really until 1969, by the federal government. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now you know why I learned so much from Larry Cohn, because you just got to also. Larry, that's exactly the kind of context and history and Ford vision that I wanted to bring to the listeners of Rethinking Trade. Because folks, typically you're hearing about the trade part of this, but it's a two-part fight. We have to have the domestic laws and policies and people power, as well as sure that internationally, the agreements on labor rights, but on trade, actually support the empowerment of people and the protection of the environment. And this is a 
movement where if we don't have the power and unions are such an important part of organized people power, all of the good things <laughs> that we have gotten through these struggles, we don't even largely recognize from labor has delivered this. And so thank you so, so much, Larry Cohn, for giving us some of your time, some of your wisdom, and everyone gets to learn from Larry like I have the honor of having done for many, many years working together. And if you don't think that this UAW strike or the Teamsters' amazing actions around UPS, if all of this labor activism doesn't affect you, you aren't paying damn attention because it really is the future on so many of the issues that are going to shape our lives. Thank you again, Larry. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And until our next episode of Rethinking Trade, this is Lori Wallach signing off. <laughs>